dependable. He's got a villain abroad. He's no sexual threat. He's a man in cords. Thank you. Jamie, uh, can I have a bit of light so I can see some of these people? So make it, let's turn it back to school. Um, there's a lot of books that are going to be uh, talked about and excerpts, and I'm just going to get mine in very quickly. This is my first official book with a spine. I've, I've had another book published before. It didn't have a spine. This one has a spine. It's got the title in the middle of it, so it, it, now my baby. And I'm looking after my baby, and I'm going to carry it through gestation, publicity, get people reading it, and, uh, and everybody will have one by Christmas. Anyway, it's called Bags of Life is this book, and it's about my life as a... I went out before I became a performer. I used to wander around drawing people on brown paper bags in Biro. And I'd wander around towns, I'd walk into offices, shops, and I'd ask people, I'd say, would you like your own personal paper bag? And I had two kids and bills to pay, so I'd charge them 50 quid for a paper bag. And then they'd buy the bag, one person out of 200, and that person would take it back home to the wife and say, I've just bought a drawing of myself. And, and then the conversation would be really kind of difficult. <laughs> this is a, an excerpt from my book. I'll just put my glasses on. Is, could I have a, can I have a bit more light on these people? Is that possible, Jamie? Because all I can see is like candles here. Four candles, it's like 1976 or 1973 when the... Fox, yeah, all right, okay, I'm the fucking comedian. All right, anyway, this is an excerpt from my book, Bags of Life. I went to Featherston, shuttered shops, boarded up houses, it was so poor. I went to the pretty villages, Marsden, Hebden Bridge, and marveled at the difference. The quiet rhythm of a wine bar versus the clatter, smell, and excitement of a tap room. It was often the poorest bars where I made my wages. I wasn't looking for thrills. I wanted to get the truth, whatever that was. Crossing the threshold of a private club, the back of a garage, an insurance office, a warehouse floor, the innards of a business. Investigative reporter Mick Artistics uncovers the truth at Fox's Biscuit Factory. The story was as important as the drawing. What was said, where it took place. If I arrived early in a town, I'd do some door knocking just to get my muscles going before heading for the pubs where most of my money was made. I could be drawing for about six or seven hours without getting a sale. A drawing would come at closing time. I had a small window to get it finished. It meant I had no time to panic but just get on and do the job. I learned to be patient, like a fisherman. I tried to make sure I didn't leave it too late so that I could get my buses back to Leeds. But often I had a long walk home, 10 miles sometimes. I didn't mind. The stars would be out and it was quiet. I'd arrive back in the early hours, make myself a sandwich and a cup of tea, and my feet would hum with tiredness. I loved it. That's a little piece from Bags of Life. There's a, a copy at the back of the... Uh, on that table over there and you can peruse it and as yet uh, there's no publisher but God will help <laughs> right I'm going to introduce so uh, let's kick on let's crack on uh, 
We've got uh, set one. I begin set one. I am Genesis. Genesis P, what is it? Artistic. Uh, anyway, this is a, we've got on um, Deserter. Two gentlemen, Southern London blog. Deserter is a slacker's alternative guide to the wonky wonderland south of the river. Its authors, Dirty South and Dulwich Raider, record offbeat days out and urban adventures in pubs, cemeteries, galleries, hospitals, disabled toilets and pubs again, often in the company of their volatile dealer, Half-Life, and the rather nicer Roxy. So ladies and gentlemen, can I have a big round of applause, please, uh, and welcome onto the stage, Deserter. Thanks, Mike. I am a man in chords, actually. Uh, I'm Vince Raisin. I'm a co-author of Shirk Reston Play, The Ultimate Slacker's Bible, the second and final book in the Deserter trilogy. Uh, we've branched out in this book to skiving and getting more out of life by doing less, and we cover the, the whole life cycle from birth to death. Um, the reading I'm going to do follows the chapter on childhood, uh, and it's unfortunately entitled Work. So you've left the loving embrace of education and its deferral of responsibility. What now? Your parents no longer expect to see you lolling about the house and raiding their fridge. They expect you to earn some money, make them proud, and mostly bugger off. The transition to the adult world includes interviews, commuting, punctuality, and meetings. Awful. Novelty may make this writer passage seem fun at first. Indeed, work has so much going for it. There's the money, and there's the sense of achievement, the socialising, the cachet. So why then, despite these benefits, does it feel so shit? It's mainly down to two reasons. One, you have to do it. Two, you have a boss. To be clear, we're talking about work here, not endeavour, not vocation. Working hard at something you enjoy is fine if you can manage it, perhaps even good for you. No, we're talking about the relentless drudgery of enforced employment, the endless weeks, the crawling years. The, it's so dark at the end of the tunnel, I didn't even know it was a fucking tunnel. Metro bolo dodo, the French call it. Tube, work, sleep. Well, at least they have nice lunches. In China, there is a growing resistance to the country's 996 culture, which semi-officially requires employees to work from 9 to 9, six days a week. Japan is the birthplace of Kuroshi, meaning death from overwork. In the US, it is common for employees to receive just 10 days of holiday a year. There's no doubt about it, work is a scandal perpetrated on an international scale. British workers suffered from work-related stress, depression, and anxiety in increasing numbers. It's a barely mentioned and entirely avoidable epidemic that a four-day week could really put a dent in. <laughs> and that our preference, the five-day weekend, would eradicate. 
Add in the stress of constantly having to manage your boss, and is it any wonder that work is often cited as the single biggest cause of what doctors call irritable bastard syndrome? <laughs> Choose a job you love, and you will never have to work a day in your life, said Confucius, but where are all these jobs that people love? Try shouting hands up if you love your job on a commuter train, commuter train at 7am on a Tuesday morning. See how many friends you make. Do you love your job? Here's a simple test. On a Sunday evening, when you're collecting the washing from the back of the kitchen chairs, is there a spring in your step and a song in your heart? Do you belt out, work in the morning, I'm going to work in the morning? Or do you find yourself wondering what it would be like to be a property magnate, or an heiress, or a footballer, a high-class prostitute, a hermit, a dog, anything, so you don't have to go back to work? I'm going to hand over to my co-writer now, Andy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. He's got another one out this month as well. Uh, yeah, so uh, I am Andy Grumbridge, Dulwich Raider, and yeah, as we've heard, we encourage you to work less and play more. Uh, the key demand is the five-day weekend, and that is we're not for moving on that one. Um, however, we do realise that uh, if you do less work, it can sometimes mean you have less income and indeed more time in which to spend it. So this book, uh, which is available at the back of the room at a 20% discount tonight, um, also offers uh, many ways to supplement your income and how to keep hold of what you've got. Um, but our key idea in the field of money is not a new one. In fact, it's been around for 500 years. Uh, it's called Universal Basic Income. We come now to the cornerstone of our economic model, the advocacy of a universal basic payment for everyone in the universe. It goes something like this. No matter what your circumstances, once you reach the age of 18, you will be paid 800 pounds a month to do with what you will, and regardless of whether you choose to work for income on top of that. It's not a new idea. Sir Thomas More suggested it in Utopia in 1513, for the simple reason that no one should die of hunger. Uh, clearly, modern society knows better. Trials in Iran a decade ago found that the recipients did not remove themselves from the labor market, as had been feared. Only those in their 20s actually did less work, which does suggest we should listen to the wisdom of the young. Uh, a, pilot system, uh, a pilot scheme in Finland found that participants were happier but jobless. This was according to a BBC News headline that spectacularly missed the point. Compared to the control group, it made little or no difference to their finding jobs, but they had better mental health and were generally more fun to be around. <laughs> UBI would simply put eradicate poverty. That is hugely significant and surely a key duty of any government. It would allow workers to reject low wages, fund unpaid carers, let victims of domestic violence get the hell out, and allow people to find out what they really want to do with their lives and support them while they do it. In short, it would help people be happier. Sure, some people might lie around all day eating cherries and masturbating. We say, crucially, let them. <laughs> Not in public, though, to be fair. Enough is enough. How would it be paid for? 
by dismantling a redundant means-tested benefits system and legalizing and taxing drugs for a start. At a stroke, wealth would be redistributed to those who don't have it, rather than waiting for it to somehow magically trickle down to the poorest in society like monetary golden syrup. Trickle-down economics is a fallacy. The rich don't want anything to trickle down, not their syrup and particularly not their money. For too long, the focus has been on job creation and employment figures as the signs of a healthy economy. We urge governments everywhere to heed our cry. We don't want the jobs. We just want the money. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> as I say, it's on sale at the back. And I'll hand back over to Mick now. Thank you, that was Deserter, um, and you can check out the stuff at the back. Uh, also, you've got Deserter, their website, deserter.co.uk, and it's 20% off tonight. Bring the next act on, and the next person on is uh, Rosie Wilby, award-winning comedian who's appeared many times on BBC Radio 4 programmes, including Women's Hour, Saturday Live, and Forethought. Her book is Monogamy Dead, investigates the psychology of love and relationships. Rosie also presents the Breakup Monologues podcast and regularly appears as a commentator on sexuality, dating, and love on radio and TV. Rosie will be. Hooray, I am Rosie will be. Uh, yes, thank you, Mick, for that introduction and Zelda for having me along and the Breakup Monologues podcast is now also a book. Hooray! My interest in breakups all came about a few years ago when I was dumped by email. What do we think about that? There are some of the breakup emails coming through now. I can hear them. And no, it's not good, is it? It's a bit rude, isn't it? But I did feel much better once I'd corrected her spelling <laughs> and punctuation and change the font. Break up in wingdings is far preferable. And that does uh, follow on from my first book, which Mick mentioned, Is Monogamy Dead?, which was all inspired by a survey I conducted for a comedy show asking about what counts as cheating. And uh, it was inspired when I'd heard that in many surveys, around 50% of people confess to cheating, however they define that, and that got me thinking, if you are in a monogamous relationship and you're not cheating, better look closely at your partner. Simple math says it has got to be them. Uh, so uh, the Breakup Monologues, the new book, combines some of the funniest and most bizarre breakup stories I've heard on the podcast across 50 or so episodes that we've put out with some of the real science and psychology of heartbreak and how we recover from it, and with my own story of finally trying to stay in a relationship. So it is for those of you who are in relationships as well. Um, you, can, you can gain something from it about how to avoid a breakup and how to try and actually stay together. I'm now married, so <laughs> maybe it worked. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so my partner is called Girlfriend, in the book. It's kind of a spoiler, now you know we stay together, don't you? But it's a happy ending, you see, now you know that it's cheerful and optimistic. Uh, so, so let's uh, hear from the prologue where we first meet Girlfriend. 
We're driving to a festival in girlfriend's midlife crisis car, an electric blue BMW convertible. Though the way she drives makes me wonder if you can still describe it as a midlife crisis if it ends up killing us. That would be an end of life crisis and quite a crisis at that. Never mind, the sun is shining, our life is good, we have a fancy loft conversion, we go on ski holidays, we Google things like, can dog eat mange too? After two decades of scratching out a creative existence from gig to gig, first as a wistful indie songwriter and then as a willfully grassrootsy comedian, I now get to live like a wanker because my libido went all aspirational on me and drew me to a partner with an actual job. However, three months shy of our three-year anniversary, shit has got real. Girlfriend and I have reached a refreshing level of frankness about the fact that our mutual desire has waned. We have teetered and toppled over the parapet of honeymoon bliss and fallen to the ground below, stirred from the anaesthetizing effects of the sexy brain chemicals that have propelled us along thus far with relative ease. Suddenly, we're acutely aware of the careers and friends that we have neglected during the happy haze. We have reached the stage where being in a relationship with a fellow human has become a massive pain in the arse. Even though it's a largely excellent relationship that neither of us intends to leave. Repeat, we're not going to break up. Not for the foreseeable, not us. In fact, it's the first time I've reached this point and not been planning a daring, dramatic escape. Counting up the significant partners whom I probably would have married if it had been legally available to me all along, I'm now on to my fifth wife. That puts me on a multi-marriage par with Joan Collins. Already at the age of 48, she was 68 when she married her final husband. If I was going to continue to be a slave to serial monogamy, <laughs> if you're reading this, darling, <laughs> of course I'm not, I would have ample time to overtake her and catch up with Liz Taylor and her seven husbands, one of whom she married twice. But I'm done with twisting. I think I'd like to stick. I found a funny, sexy, generous partner, even if she does have a ridiculous knobby car. Surely if I left this one, I'd be breaking up with love altogether. It would be my end game. And it's from this position of at least wanting to stay, of accepting the maddening claustrophobia of companionship, that I want to investigate why breakups continue to compel me so much. Perhaps it's because breakups facilitate or maybe even necessitate transformation. In the wake of a separation, our peers allow us to reinvent ourselves. The rest of the time, they like us to stay fixed so they can move around and ahead of us. But heartbreak is the golden ticket that circumvents this bullshit. Renewed and reborn, standing at the edge of the echoing canyon of our former frustrations, we shout, this is who I am now. And we run and skip away from the parched carcasses of the old selves we've grown to hate. For me, it's been during these fleeting, liberating gaps of singledom that I've really got shit done. I recorded and released an album. I launched a boutique music PR company. I started comedy. I wrote a book. Each time I harnessed any lingering feelings of anger, sadness, and confusion and used them as energizing forces for creativity, for moving forwards with new insights into my own shortcomings and foibles. I wonder if it's possible to do that much learning and actively stay in a relationship. I hope so. It must be right, or else all long-term couples would be codependent, emotionally stunted weirdos. <laughs> oh. oh, hang on. <laughs> Thank you. Now, <laughs> I 
Uh, I want to do a, a big shout out for the books because I found out this somewhat alarming thing about uh, the bizarre world of publishing. Um, my book, um, The Breakup Monologues, is out in this beautiful hardback with this wonderfully designed cover. And it comes out in paperback next year. But what I found out is if your hardbacks don't sell out by the time that your paperback comes out, loads of hardbacks get destroyed, which I just think is pretty horrific. So I've made it my mission to make sure all the hardbacks go to absolutely loving homes by people who will put them on their shelves and absolutely enjoy and read the book. Um, so we do have a few copies available here tonight for the incomparable price of £12, recommended retail price £16.99, so that's £5 off, well, nearly. Uh, so uh, you can get it for £12 tonight and I can sign any message in it you like. I've been asked to sign some strange things over the years. Straight to penetration was an odd one. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can also buy, uh, my first book is Montgomery Dead, which is quite rare now because it's been uh, selling out everywhere. And uh, yes, so, and you can also buy a double book bundle for £20. So I'd love to come and chat to you if you want to buy the books or if um, you can't buy them tonight and you want to look them up on Amazon and all those other places online, they're on there and it massively helps. Even if you can't buy it now, if you save it on your wish list for later or send it to a friend, recommend it to someone who's been through a breakup and wants a little bit of a relatable laugh. Um, thank you so much and uh, do keep in touch and support Brixton Book Jam, support all the authors tonight. Thank you. That was Rosie. Will be. That's it. She's got a big pause now for the rest of her life. Uh, the next person on is a person who's uh, fed me tonight and who's let me see her around her house. And she's also the creator of this event, and she's a hard-working, um, interesting, unusual woman. And her name is Zelda Rianda, and she's going to be reading from her book tonight. Oh, just a brief, uh, brief bit. She lives around the corner. She's got children. She does a good fish pie, and she doesn't like Sudoku. Right. Zelda! I think it was extra thoughtful of him to keep the, the microphone really low so I could reach. So thank you very much, Mick. Um, so I guess it's not exactly an excerpt. I've been doing a lot of research for a book. And I, um, I grew up, my grandmother used to take me to a, a commune in Yorkshire, uh, which was dedicated to uh, the work, which was about self-consciousness um, and Gurdjieff and how can we become more conscious beings. So weirdly, when you're writing a book, sometimes everything's connected. So uh, I've brought to you, please forgive me, good Jeff, uh, but I've rewritten your theory of the idiots. So here we go. One, ordinary idiot. The ordinary idiot doesn't know they're an idiot. They live in the bliss of ignorance. Two, super idiot. The super idiot considers themselves to be superior to the ordinary idiot. They've intuited that there is something beyond. Three, arch-idiot. They have transcended the super and consider themselves to be controlled and controlling. Four, hopeless-idiot. They start to realize their limitations and vacillate between the desire to go further and the certainty 
but they never will. Five, compassionate idiot, realizes that they've progressed to the point where they can help and guide others. Six, squirming idiot, realizes that helping others isn't enough and they are pinned by the microscope of all knowing and that they can regress and fall. Seven, square idiot, reaches a point of stability where they won't slide down the mountain. Eight, round idiot, gains the ability to climb, roll effortlessly towards the goal until they reach an obstacle. Nine, zigzag idiot, gains the ability to dodge and evade obstacles. 10, enlightened idiot, shines brightly, showing others the path they have taken by illuminating the way. 11, doubting idiot, doesn't believe that they'll ever reach the summit or that the sacrifices made were worth the price. 12, swaggering idiot, feels pride at how far they've come. 13, remorseful idiot, realizes that pride is blocking any further progress. 14, born idiot, casts every preconception aside and attains complete innocence. 15, patented idiot, cast themselves in their own world completely consciously. 16, idiot of stinking hierarchy, idolatized as a demigod by those who would attain their stature. The next three idiots, 18, 19, and 20, occupy a special place, sacred individuals who perform functions in relation to the whole megalocosmos. The 21st is the unique idiot, that is, our God, our endlessness. We are all more in the universe when we make a connection, that is, our tragedy and our beauty. And what are the different types of intelligence? One, motor intelligence, the ability to move intelligently. Two, spatial intelligence, knowing where you've been and being able to retrace your steps. Three, material intelligence, being able to manipulate your environment to serve your needs. Four, strategic intelligence, the ability to integrate and anticipate risks and opportunities in your world. Five, applied intelligence, the ability to take elements in your experience, change them, and create new patterns and templates for life. Six, emotional intelligence, the ability to intuit, integrate, and reflect both your needs and those of the other consciousness around you. And finally, synthesis, takes all forms of data and reflects those back to create the perfect pattern of human endeavor. And how do the intelligences relate to the idiots? They're coins that haven't been flipped yet. I have body dysmorphia. I look in the mirror and see a monster. You have intellectual dysmorphia. You look in the mirror and perceive an idiot.
na 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 you could do a sudoku on sudoku man that's what he's there for sudoku man you get 10 minutes and you gotta move on and let somebody else use sudoku man sudoku on his jacket sudoku on his hat Sudoku on his trousers, I don't know what it's made of, but his suit's fantastic. Na 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 He carries a case with his sandwiches in and a paper to read with a Sudoku in. Travels the country in a little white van, then he's out on the street, he's Sudoku man. Sudoku on his jacket. Sudoku on his hat. Sudoku on his trousers, I don't know what it's made of, but his suit's fantastic. Na 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 You can do a Sudoku from Sudoku man. He stands out from the crowd, he's Sudoku man. If you get stuck, he'll give you a hand. Don't call him a busker, he's Sudoku man. Sudoku on his jacket. Sudoku on his hat. Sudoku on his trousers, I don't know what his medal, but his suit's fantastic. Na 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 He doesn't say much, he doesn't want to distract you. Knows you've got to focus, you can't waste time. He doesn't go in for social chit chat, got a lot on his mind. His wife's in traction. Nine to five. Monday to Friday. Five days a week, he never gets away because his wife's in traction. He had a bit of a breakdown in 95. Took him a while to get back on his feet again. He does a lot of walking to clear his head. Then he's out on the street, he's Sudoku, man. Sudoku, no, that's the end of it. That's it, just leave it there, leave it. Right, we're bringing on the next, the next writer. It's C.J. Schuller, author of three illustrated histories of cartography, Mapping the World, Mapping the City, and Mapping the Sea and Stars, and co-author of the best-selling Traveller's Atlas. He's reading from his new book, The Wood That Built London. Thank you, Mick. Thank you, Zelda, for inviting me to be here tonight. Thank you all for listening. Um, just brief introduction. The book is about the Great North Wood that once stretched all the way from Selhurst to Croydon, and uh, of which a few fragments still survive today. I'll read very briefly from the intro so we know what and where we're talking about and uh, then I'll take a slightly longer extract from later on. Standing in the busy streets of South London today, it is hard to imagine that as recently as the 18th century, much of this suburban townscape was covered by an expanse of woodland and wooded commons, spreading almost unbroken for seven miles from Croydon to the Thames at Deptford. Its legacy can be found in many local place names, Norwood, Collierswood, Honor Oak, Gypsy Hill, Henge, which means Wood's End, Woodside, and Selhurst, from the Anglo-Saxon for dwelling in a wood. A survival of the wild wood that once covered much of Britain, from Saxon times until the Industrial Revolution, the wood was in... Lower the mic. Okay. 
a survival of the wildwood that once covered much of Britain from Saxon times until the Industrial Revolution, the wood was intensively managed to provide timber for construction and shipbuilding, bark from which tannin was extracted for leather making, and charcoal for London's blacksmiths and bakeries. Its produce helped to build the city that would, in the course of a millennium, whittle it down to a few surviving remnants. The largest of these can be found at Dulwich and Sydenham Hill, where relict and secondary woodland still covers some 25 hectares. Smaller fragments can be found at One Tree Hill in Honour Oak, Biginwood, Spar Hill, Bewley Heights and Grangewood Park in Norwood, and at Long Lane to the south of Elmer's End. The nearest ancient woodland to central London, they sustain wildlife in the capital, help cleanse its polluted air, and provide city dwellers with access not only to nature, but to something rooted deep in our collective unconscious. Once much of the wildwood had been cleared for arable and pasture, what remained became an intensively managed resource. Wood was regularly harvested using a technique known as coppicing. This consists of cutting a tree close to ground level to encourage multiple shoots to grow from the stump or coppice stool to provide a renewable source of timber. Since the tree already has a fully developed root system, regrowth is rapid, producing a large quantity of round, even, strong and flexible poles. These poles are then harvested at intervals of five to 20 years, depending on the species, after which the cycle begins again. The practice was described by the Roman writers Cato and Pliny the Elder, but archaeological evidence has shown that it was already more ancient in their day than they are in ours. In waterlogged sites where timbers are not exposed to the air, they may survive for millennia, and archaeologists are able to date them using a technique known as dendrochronology. Put simply, in a wet summer, a tree will grow a wide ring, in a dry year, a narrow one. The resulting patterns do not repeat themselves and are broadly consistent over an entire climatic region such as Northwest Europe. Working backwards from timbers that can be accurately dated by other archaeological evidence or documentary sources, scientists have managed to piece together a chronology stretching back more than 12,000 years. As a result, we know that the Sweet Track, a Neolithic wooden causeway built across a marsh in the Somerset Levels, was built in 3807 BC. The long, straight cross pieces that support its oak planking appear to be coppice poles. A Bronze Age platform at Must Farm near Peterborough is built on oak piles dating from around 1240 BC. During a later phase of construction, around 1000 to 800 BC, an enclosure of coppice ash was added. Closer, both in time and geographically, archaeological sites from Roman London have produced structural timbers from managed woodlands, along with charcoal, that probably originated as coppice poles. I'm just going to read one more short extract, which is very local to here. Um, in Lambeth, the road between Brixton and Streatham, today's A23, was flanked on both sides by deep woods. The fourth edition of John Fox's Protestant polemic, Acts and Monuments, popularly known as the Book of Martyrs, described how they afforded a refuge for fugitives. 
1533, when the preacher John Frith, arrested on a charge of heresy, was taken from the Tower of London to Croydon to plead his case before the Bishop of Winchester, his friends plotted his escape. You see, quoth the gentleman, yonder hill before us named Bristow Causeway, two miles from London. There are great woods on both sides. When we come there, we will permit Frith to go into the woods on the left hand of the way, whereby he may convey himself into Kent among his friends, for he is a Kentish man born. And when he is gone, we will linger an hour or twain about the highway until that it somewhat draws towards the night. Then, in great haste, we will approach unto Streatham, which is a mile and a half off, and an outcry in the town that our prisoner is broken from us into the woods on the right hand towards Wainsworth. Frith refused to flee, however, preferring martyrdom to exile, and on the 1st of July, 1533, he was burnt at stake at Smithfield. Thank you all very much. Uh, the paperback is now out, and uh, it's normally 12.99, but you can buy a copy for £10 at the back of the hall. Thank you all once again. Thank you, C.J. Schuller. And uh, yes, at the back of the room, there are loads of books, and uh, we'll be breaking in a minute. Uh, but before we do, we're going to be having uh, Rebecca Holweg to sing a couple of songs, uh, and then we'll have a break, and we can drink and look and listen and go and have a pee. Bye. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here amongst writers. I love words as well, so I've chosen my two songs that have the most number of words in them. Thank you. Just take a moment to sort out. I need more than one microphone. Well, I'm going to, uh, the first song I'm going to sing is um, one that I wrote about my daughter, who's now just turned 18 and points out to me that I no longer have the ability to tell her to do anything. Um, but this is about uh, <clears throat> the stages getting to that point. And I did write it in stages. It sort of, um, took a very long time to write this song. And um, the next bit is yet to be written. If she ever comes back from Europe. This song's called Ruby. Might be the day it snows. Did you feel the cold last night? I'll stand and hold you by the window, and we'll watch the world turn white. You know, I can't believe the way she grows, reaching up towards the light. I'll stand and watch her from a distance. Always keeping her inside 
Sometimes I wonder at the things she knows If she learns what's wrong and right She's making sense of all the daytimes When she talks to me at night Someday I'll have to watch her as she goes And to trust she'll be alright All your tales have happy endings and may all your days be bright Ruby mine, ruby line Ruby mine, ruby line Ruby mine, ruby line Ruby mine, ruby line Take this time and hold it near Hold on tight to what is dear Ruby mine, ruby line Ruby mine, ruby line Ruby mine, ruby line Ruby mine, ruby line I think today might be the day it snows did you feel the cold last night? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, swings and roundabouts always with somebody growing up and lots of things go in different directions. I wrote this song, next song, about one particular situation and a completely different person, and then it started applying to another person, um, and then it all came round again. So sometimes when you write songs, you, you don't know what they're going to apply to. And when you're singing them, when I'm singing them, it's like a film kind of going through my head of lots of things that have happened. And uh, sometimes it's different stuff to what you wrote about in the beginning. Um, I've released... Four albums now, three original albums, of which I've got a couple with me, and um, these are the first two. Third one, don't have any more copies, and it seems like CDs, like books, are struggling. Physical music is struggling a bit. Um, so the final album, which is actually my first covers album, is a, is a downloadable only at the moment. And, um, but anyway, if you fancy taking one of these home, come, come see me afterwards, and also... Everything's on my website, rebeccaholweg.com. And it's a German W, which is why it's like a V-H-O-L-L-W-E-G, which is why um, I said ruby line, which is like little ruby, like rubychen, ruby line. Anyway, this one's called Light. It's very happy that Jamie Cullum played it on his Radio 2 music show and uh, particularly liked it from that last album. Have a lovely interval. Go and check out the bookshop and uh, come and have a chat if you feel like it. Thanks for listening. There was a time you nearly disappeared Faded into thin air I turn around and you are here again next to me. I 
tried to travel on my own Carrying a heavy heart I turn around And you are here again Next to me So we start again through tiny holes in paper cut with love Last thing at night I look out to see A stranger's light In the rooftops of the houses next to me So we start again So I see a flicker on your face Beacon in the dark I turn around And you are here again Next to me I see you laughing once again Spin me in your arms I turn around you are here again next to me so we start again so we start again tonight thank you thank you Thank you very much. Right, we've got 15 minutes to drink and to look at the uh, bookshop and uh, eat crisps. So, uh, and I'll give you a quick, uh, a quick one just to send you on your way. This goes like this. Petite, 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 petite and lovely. Petite, 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 petite and lovely. She was a small girl. Petite, 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 petite and lovely. From a small town. Petite, 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 petite and lovely. And her name was Sandra, petite, 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 and lovely. And the funny thing was, 
She was always alone, petite, 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 petite and lovely. It's not a long song, petite, 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 petite and lovely. Or an opera, petite, 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 petite and lovely. It ends abruptly. Thank you. Go on. Drink. Make merry. Real, essential, spiritual, mystifying stuff that will enrich your soul. Windows, doors, conservatories, Sunday afternoon. Why am I bloody working on a Sunday afternoon? Pulled up by the post box underneath the trees. The air was still, the street was quiet, there's a hint of a honeyed breeze. Bury my van at wounded knee, put my lanyard in the back. I'm sick of working for this bloody cowboys and I never want to go back. My shirt's too tight and my shirt's too white. I want to go on a bender. I want to go on a bender. I want to go on a bender. Stunted man, I'm stunted man. I'm stunted, stunted, stunted man. Sick of this and I'm sick of that. I need a new career. I want to take my son to the seaside. I want to go and have an ice cream at the seaside. I'm bloody sick. I'm bloody sick. Right, we're going to have the first act on. Thank you. We have Ned Bowman, please, with his dog. Magic, mystery, darkness tonight. And music. Just a minute. I just I think I presented quite a nice picture here. Colours, you know, reds, greys. While Ned's getting his dog together. Oh come on, Ned, get up here then. Ned Bowman is the author of five novels, including the teleportation accident, which was long listed for the two 2012 Man Booker Prize. In 2013, he was named as one of the 20 best young British novelists by Granta magazine, and his work has been translated into more than 10 languages. His latest book, Venomous Lump Sucker, was published in July. Ned! Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, that's right. My new book, Venomous Lump Sucker, came out in July. Uh, it's a comedy about species extinction set in the near future. It's actually not on sale in the corner, uh, but please buy it in your local independent bookshop or online. Um, I'm going to read... A, lo a, a lot of the book is kind of an ongoing debate between the two main characters about if some quite obscure species goes extinct, is that a huge, terrible tragedy, or does it actually not matter at all? So. 
I'm going to read from a stretch of uh, that debate that they're having. Uh, although I do also want to note the book has quite a lot of action. It's not all just people uh, like discussing philosophically. Uh, and yeah, confusingly, I'm not going to read from the book. I'm going to read the slightly modified uh, version that I printed out. Would you take a bullet for dogs, Rasaint said to Halyard. Whose dogs? You said you wouldn't take a bullet for the lost spiny shore beetle, but last night you said that if dogs ever went extinct, that would be totally different. So would you take a bullet for dogs? If we ever get to the point where there's only one surviving dog, I hope I'm already dead. Rasaint rolled her eyes. Okay, Halyard said. Someone's made a bioweapon that will kill all dogs, and it's in a canister beside me, and if the canister is shattered, then it will diffuse into the atmosphere. Would I catch a bullet with my face to stop it hitting the canister? Yes. Obviously I would. I would be the greatest hero in human history. Oh, you think I'm a species philistine? I'm a fan of dogs merely because they offer joy and companionship to millions of people. How bloody childish of me. I agree it would be sad to lose dogs, Rasaint said, just as it will be sad to lose the spiny shore beetle. But we're not losing only the spiny shore beetle. We're losing the spiny shore beetle and at least another 10,000 species every year. You say you'd rather die than lose dogs, but to lose those other 10,000 a year doesn't trouble you at all. Christ, Halyard said, you people never stop going on about your 10,000 a year. It's like being in fucking Jane Austen. The difference is, dogs actually do something for us. Most of the others are no good to anyone. I mean, look, if it's not about nice or not nice or useful or not useful, if it's just about interesting, then why don't you care about gonorrhea? Why aren't you talking about what a tragedy it would be if we eradicated an STD? If you're going to be consistent about this, you ought to care about gonorrhea too. That's a species. He thought for a moment he'd scored a point, but Rasaint replied, I do care about gonorrhea. I do think if we completely eradicated it, that would be a tragedy. Gonorrhea is as remarkable as honey badgers or birds of paradise. Oh, come on, Halyard said. You really don't believe that anything can have a value of its own beyond what function it serves for us human beings, Rasaint said. Value to who? Rasaint asked Halyard to imagine a planet in some remote galaxy a lush, seething, glittering planet covered with stratospheric waterfalls, great land sponges bouncing through the valleys, corals budding in perfect niveous hexagons, humming lichens glued to pink crystals, prismatic jellyfish breaching from the rivers, titanic lilies relying on tornadoes to spread their pollen, a planet full of complex interconnected life but devoid of consciousness. Are you telling me that if an asteroid smashed into this planet and reduced every inch of its surface to dust, nothing would be lost because nobody in particular would miss it? But the universe is bloody huge, Halyard said. Stuff like that must happen all the time. You can't go and strike over it. Honestly, it sounds to me like your real enemy isn't climate change or habitat loss, it's entropy. You don't like the idea that everything eventually crumbles. Well, it does. If you're this worried about species extinction, wait until you hear about the heat death of the universe. I would be upset about the heat death of the universe too if human beings were accelerating the rate of it by a hundred times or more. Halyard sighed. 
You know how in films it's always much sadder when a dog dies than when a person dies? I've always thought it's because the dog doesn't know what's happening. The dog's just like, hmm, I feel tired and weird. Time for a nice long snooze. So as a person watching it who does know what's happening, you end up taking on the grief that the dog can't feel over its own death. Your mind is going, someone has to have these emotions, but the dog can't have them, so I have to have them on the dog's behalf or the kid's behalf, because this also applies to dying kids in films who are like, what's happening to me, mommy? Why are you crying? What's your point, Resaint said. This spiny shore beetle of yours, it only has about two neurons to rub together, so you think you have to be sad for it. But just let the wasp handle it. It's not your grief. I'll decide what's my grief, Resaint said. Thanks. That was Ned, Ned Borman. And briefly, 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 nedborman.co.uk. Yeah, at the back of the room, he's gone with his dog. What's the name of your dog, Ned? Masker. Masger. All right, okay, good. Right. Walking down the street, I see an old guy. He looks at me and he sees an old guy. We both see each other and we see old guys and we're both going to die. He's an old guy and I'm an old guy. We, I think of myself as a, as a young guy. I don't see myself as an old guy, but he sees me as an old guy. He's got a flat calf and so have I. We're old guys. Anyway, this is the next piece. Uh, we've got... Uh, listen, listen, that took me 55 minutes to write before I came on tonight. Every inflection has been considered, all right. Right, and the next person on we have is a gentleman, uh, sorry, uh, is Kweku Ose Afrifa. He's a writer and commissioning editor living in London. They have previously written for Manchester Evening News, Huffington Post, and the bestseller. The Surf is their first novella. A second is on the way, alongside about a million other things. A penniless artist. Kweku. The beer isn't part of my act. I just need it close to me. Um, so I'm going to read from my novella. It's a science fiction novella. Um, I'm not going to read from the beginning, so I might just say a couple of things about it. So it's set 200 years in the future. A lot of people from Earth have left to go to a new planet called Orin, uh, and it's a tidally locked planet, which means the planet itself doesn't rotate as it rotates around its star, which means one side is completely sun, one side is completely darkness, um, and I'm going to read from near the beginning, but not the beginning beginning. Most of the friends I grew up with were off-world, like actually off-world, making slingshots around the system with their high-paid jobs, wives, husbands, and romantic communes. 
But one re relic from my life had surfaced, and I was meeting her later, hence the hosing down. I was scrubbing up nicely for India Palmer, former collegiate president, class of 2244's most likely to succeed, and succeed she had. The matriarch of a biotech conglomerate corporation, mainly responsible for extending our life, life expectancy into the hundreds. I put myself in a baggy jumpsuit and packed plenty of water. I fiddled with wearing my specs and blinked all of the way from my studio to the monorail. The windows filters were right up to match my spec settings, and I was grateful for the break from the sun, sun, sun. As I sat, watching the world's murkily zip by, I remembered my mother's explanation for moving to this world. They promised us riches, so she participated in our quadrant's ballot for the three of us to go. Winners got an expense-paid relocation settlement to Oren. It was an instant or quick or an easy process. Not for us or anyone around us, neither. I didn't know the word at the time, but there was a fugue that settled onto our immediate world, like those graphics of odors settling on your fabrics in advertising vids, or a rootkit running in sync in shadow underneath the system if you're tech savvy and find the mating call of capitalism odious. People got meaner to each other. Now, I'm not sure if opinions on our neighbors affected outcomes, but did that stop you keeping tabs on your proximals? How societally useful they were? Did they recycle? Did they volunteer? Never run a red light on their bikes? Of course it didn't. The not knowingness, that ineffable question, nor chunks of friendships, marriages, congregations, and comprehensively reconfigured any collections of humans above a group size of one. I had a best friend who journaled endlessly about this time in our lives. He shared them with me and Tossin as alpha readers before he started posting them online. Despite our expert feedback and his devotion, they never gained that much traction. I always thought because they were shit, but Jonah, bless him, maintained his pieces were confiscated by the powers that be as he was too close to the truth. And when I told him, no one likes an oracle, look what happened to Cassandra, didn't talk to me for approximately 19 days, and I learned a valuable lesson about never throwing shade on his art and his feelings. And I never shook his memorable phrase of the awe and order from any part of me. I was a little thing then, and it stretched, my, it stretched my capacity to picture another world, like this one, but different, newer, nicer, and not just for everyone. But eventually, mother and I moved here 15 years ago. I stopped talking to her eight years ago. I stepped off the monorail, weaving my way through evening commuters, either going home or scrubbed up nicely for their own evening engagements. A lot of them, the real high rollers, weren't wearing specs at all, idly gliding by, looking like nothing doing, like Oren's constant daylight was as unremarkable as breathing. When you got close enough, or they turned their heads to catch the light, you could see the glint of their lenses. The lenses changed with your eyes, real rich, fancy shit. I wouldn't have to wear the specs for long, though. Mine weren't the latest model. India gave me the address of this swish eatery when I was at home, and I spat out my noodles when the location flashed up on my slate. No great loss. The noodles weren't the best. She was taking me to North Ombro. The Ombros were practically where high rollers are made and spend all of their time seeing a night sky. I was finding myself at the prospect of spending an evening free from sweat, heat, stickiness, humidity. She cleared an Ombro visitor code, and it synced with me on the monorail over. I caught myself rubbing my neck in anxiety as I walked towards the checkpoint. What if this is some joke a teammate was playing on me? 
what it had been years, close to a decade since I'd spoken to India. Hold on, why only now, moments from the checkpoint, did it finally occur to me that this could be a ruse, that I was a rat in a fucking maze, and what it looked what looked like the way out was actually the cat's open moor, thrilled that dinner was volunteering itself. Those assembled by the checkpoint looked me up and down. It took a lot not to react. If anything, their looks confirmed what I was too stupid to realize before now. I couldn't turn around, though, pretend I was lost or some shit. I joined the back of a queue, and more people joined me, so I was no longer the back. No easy means of escape now. You only come here when you're invited here, when you belong here and I'd had some delusion that maybe an invitation was mine today. But as my ankle almost gave way under me once more, that was a clear indication of why they were staring, my limp. My body still bruised, constellations of welts and lacerations mostly covered by the jumpsuit. My sister's makeup tutorials didn't quite cover how to contour breathing mask cheek lines, or worse, the speck rings. The last few steps, if I could stretch my amble to be called steps, took me to a checkpoint guard and her scanner. A crisp, finely pressed, evening sky blue uniform with a sun decal on the shoulders. I have such an artistic disposition that I focused on what the guard was wearing and not the machine gun lazing in her arms. Maybe this was a bad idea. Not the options were rushing to present themselves to me at my time of need. I didn't know what to do either, so I tried to watch what the people around me were doing. The actions I could copy, but that ease, that confidence they moved with was beyond me. The guard beckoned me forward, gesture clipped with annoyance, all jerk and no grace, all welcoming to sucker like every commercial vid said, for holding up the line behind me. I glanced over my shoulder and it was long. There was another checkpoint person, stood in front of one of those screens where on my side I can look right through, but on their side they could see everything. Similar Sandical on the shoulders, but he was in a uniform the pinkish orange of a sunset. Eventually, I leaned forward. And India's visitor cold flashed up. Thank the sun, bless sun. Neither guard checked their surprise quick enough. The screen guard apologized, overcompensated by telling me to keep warm too nicely and sent me on my way. Jerky arm left her disbelief plain for me to see, though. Asshole. The specs went into my coat pocket as I drew the whole thing around me. Knew I brought it for a reason. I rubbed up my abused eye sockets tried to massage them into the clean, clear, smooth skin of someone who hadn't spent almost half of her life squinting. Did I want a bigger sign hovering overhead, declaring that I didn't belong? Ugh. I willed my hand still, took a swig of water, warm. I think I need a new bottle. Sun damn thing almost never kept anything cold. Another excuse to fidget, I need to stop. Back to my hands. I held my wrist with the other hand behind my back and attempted something approaching calm. Decided that the only angst I could get away with was internal. Introspect only. To project was to evoke sunlight on your problems. So garish, so boring. The change in umbro was almost immediate. It looked like night now. Felt like it, too. Part of me wanted to gaze skyward and see the stars, but it would probably have my brain leaking out of my nose in seconds. Considering the old-timer pose I was rocking, it was probably too late. Brain matter had long since departed for freedom from their cranial detention. Instead, I buttoned up my jacket, thrust my hands into my pocket, and made for Knox. India was plumper than I remembered. Then again, she was older than I remembered too. Why she had got back in touch with me when she did, I had no idea. High rollers played by their, played by their own rules. She had this laugh like it seemed like it was coming out of this tiny place where the old India I grew up 
knowing was still alive. I realized I liked watching her laugh and making her laugh. I was on my third large glass of wine and was ready to tell her about my secret crush on her little brother. Lightweight in all walks of my life. India was knocking them back, but she didn't look how I felt. From our booth, suspended above the main restaurant floor, I could see everyone else glitter in their finery. We had satellite booths, and the high back chairs and walls made us all tiny private islands. I pushed my plate forward and wiped my hands and mouth to stop licking my fingers. A satisfied gasp, satisfied sigh escaped my lips, leaning back, cradling my new food baby. India was smiling the smile I couldn't work out over the top of her wine glass, but fuck it, I didn't care. I'd shoved so much hard roller grub down my throat and she kept swiping her card to pick up the bill. Somebody enjoyed her food. Any trace of her old list pattern had been eradicated. Power, I guessed. You high rollers know how to indulge, I said between gouging morsels from bet between my teeth with a toothpick. India rolled her eyes, but that laugh came back and I felt it in my stomach. You're still calling them high rollers, eh, Ali? I did a scoff that was altogether disgusting. Them? More like you, look where we are. Look at that fucking asteroid belt around your neck. Plus, she was wearing so much jewelry and it contained her minual. Sane people like me have it secured away with secure remote access. I call them totems, unique items chosen for sentimental or inconspicuous value mapped to your biometrics to ensure another layer of security. They had an, they had an official, which I knew was more boring name, but I like totems much better. Sadly, it wasn't catching on. I would always have to explain, and then the person would say, ooh, why didn't you say that in the first place? And I would want to punch them in the throat and say, ooh, why don't you just choke and die? But never would I actually throw the punch. Once or twice, I came close. Anyway, your manual contains absolutely everything about you, and how cavalier she was with it was probably High Roller 101, but so completely badass, I couldn't drag her for it. Are you going to hold that against me? We wouldn't be here. She did this expansive gesture, taking in our luxurious surroundings. She looked well at home doing that. There wasn't a single part of me that resented the authority emanating from her. That surprised me. I was pretty sure I spent all of this evening a moment away from throwing up all over this high roller shit. But nope, nope, nope. India was exempt from the scorn I usually held. Probably not. I'm a stone heavier with hypocrisy and not just from this feast. Of course, but I should tell you why you're here. She leaned forward and I watched her right hand go under the table. There was the faint sound of a button being pressed and a persistent whine just at the edge of hearing. I scratched at the inside of my ear and tried to yawn in case my ears had popped. She noticed and looked aghast. You can hear that? I kept at the ear, making the sorts of faces you do on your own and you're bored and you haven't put any outside clothes on. Yeah, what is that? It came on all of a sudden but now you're not going out your ear like a drill. What's your secret? It's to stop anyone we don't want listening in. She regained her composure. Really? And what are we going to talk about that we don't want anyone listening in? I mirrored her pose. Whatever could that be? Thank you. So this isn't available over there, um, but if you follow me on Twitter, at Penniless Artist, you can find the link to buy this. Uh, they're all signed copies, so you're gonna have my signature, which maybe one day will be worth something. Have a great night. Thank you, Quakel.
And now we have Ivy Nyao, born and raised in Johor Bahru, Malaysia. Her debut, Cry of the Flying Rhino, was awarded the International Perverse Prize in Hong Kong. Her novels include Hearts of Glass, 2018, Overboard, and White Crane Strikes. Can we have Ivy? Good evening, Brixton. Thank you very much um, for staying to hear me read. Um, tonight, I will be reading from my latest novel, White Crane Strikes. It's an Asian-American family drama thriller set in Chicago. It's about an Asian-American young dude called J.J. Lee, who is unemployed and whose girlfriend, through her art world schmoozing, has got him um, a job uh, as a handyman in a wealthy arts patron's mansion. But when he begins the job, he realizes that he has discovered some dark secrets which would endanger his family. And she's pregnant, she's given up art school in order to work in a departmental store because he has been unemployed for so long due to uh, Vietnam. Um, and she, she thinks that um, he deserves better. So he, she's decided to get him this job. And she decides that she deserves better too. Um, I'm going to be reading from both viewpoints, and I, I apologize if any of you are from um, the U.S. Is anybody here from the U.S.? Okay, good. <laughs> I, I'm going to be um, trying to read in the characters' own voices. Okay, Canadians, um, that's okay, right? It's okay. So this is from the main character, J.J. Lee's viewpoint. Well, hello and good morning, said the old man. The well made him sound friendly. He was frail with sparse, fine white hair, a little soup, and his voice was thin. He was wearing clothes from at least 100 years ago. No, maybe 30, but at least he was well-dressed. At least he was dressed. You heard of old people who wore what they slept in all year round. How do you do? You must be. Jerry, Jerome Syracuse Lee. You can call me JJ. Everybody do. I mean, does. JJ lost the ability to speak. Not that he was a great speaker in the first place. He'd always been the quiet type. Lord knew how many got into trouble for opening their cake cave. Well, which do you prefer? Jerry, sir, he answered, which sounded better than JJ in a job situation. Jerry was what the guys at the steelworks called him. His great-grandparents had been alive when he was born, and they nicknamed him JJ, a doubled-up American version of his Cantonese name, Zha. Zha. 
Like many Chinese words, it had multiple interpretations based on context. Zhe meant thanks, apologies, and also the withering of flowers. That pretty much summed up life. Alfred Sutton, he held his hand out, which JJ firmly shook. You can call me Alfred. Yes, sir. Italian? Asked Mr. Alfred. How to explain this, thought JJ. Syracuse, his mother's surname, gave away that he was Sicilian and one from New York. Yet his origin wasn't easily explainable. His father was Chinese. He liked that Lee could be American or Chinese, and no one could tell, which meant that depending on the situation, he was indeed both. His great-grandparents had been from Canton. Coincidentally, they had the same surname, Lee. Marrying someone with the same surname was believed to be a curse, bringing bad, bad luck to the whole family. JJ's great-grandmother's name was Lei Cha. She didn't have a name, just a practical use. Cha meant tea. They called her Cha, a Cha when they wanted tea. JJ was a true American from everywhere. Sharing the same surname as Bruce Lee was a source of pride for a Kung Fu guy like JJ. I'm from Beecher, Illinois, he replied as plainly as facts allowed. Robert Ellsworth, Mr. Alfred said, and then elaborated when JJ blinked. The professor, a good friend, he sent you. Yes, no, my girlfriend, fiancé. He tripped over the word. Fiancé, she had told him. Not fancy, Han, it's foreign. And small talk was foreign to him too. He left all that to Dallas, the art world and so on. She told me about the job. Come on in, let me show you around. I'm now going to read to you from the girlfriend's viewpoint. Can I help at all? What are you looking for exactly, sir? Well, something for my wife. She's a lucky lady. Oh, yeah. His eyes darted over the glass counter. He is. He said absentmindedly, distracted and unaware of what he was looking at. Lipsticks for her? Maybe a perfume? Is it her birthday? It's her birthday. Now, how did you know? The man was tall. Maybe around 40 or 50 in a modern gray suit, and he wore big gold square wireframe glasses. He was attractive in an old-fashioned Hollywood way. He was tanned, and there was something refined about him, despite the cheap suit. Dallas wondered what his wife looked like. The man was looking at her and not the counter. Well, I guessed she looked at him back. Let me show you our new spring-summer colors. She slid open the glass drawer and got the lipstick samples out, 
all in a variety of exotic pretty names. Orchid, hibiscus, peony. So you like the pink, the rose door? He didn't reply. She tried again. What color is your wife's hair and eyes? Oh, uh, she's ginger and she's brown-eyed. She sounds pretty. He looked at her without replying. Did he or did he not agree his wife was pretty? She scratched the back of her earring and started to look serious when she thought about his reaction. In retail, you must keep your hands off any part of your head, stop thinking immediately, and smile a big smile instead. What about your feller? He asked brightly. Well, thanks to me, he's recently got a great job. Dallas grinned, replacing the lipsticks he was clearly not interested in and getting out the different powder compacts, some modern and some traditional. Oh, yes? He looked at each powder compact carefully, picked one up, the silver one, and examined it like a museum object. Yes, he, he's a handyman. She had to give up being an art student to work full-time in a store because he lost his job. Now she was pregnant and had left art behind. She couldn't tell that to a stranger, a customer. Her grin sank into a thin line. He triggered open the push mechanism to spring open the mirrored lid like a switchblade. Then he repeated the action with four of the other compacts. He looked like a boy, excited about new toys, which did things. A handyman? The man was impassive. He had to put down the last compact he played with. Dallas's face cracked and fell like a plate. He was still a customer, so she bravely tried to hold the faceplate together. Could he have acted more shocked? if Dallas would have referred to being a handyman as a great job? I'm sorry, the man said. I was actually thinking I, we really need a handyman for some jobs which need fixing at home. Oh, yes. Dallas knew the store was not a place to talk about JJ. She was at work herself. JJ was already busy, and the man seemed to understand. Do you work around here? Dallas glanced at the clock on the top of the high walls of the store. Her lunchtime was almost over, and here she was, having not even made a sale that morning. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the reading. And I was reading from White Crane Strikes, which is available here. And tonight I will be undercutting um, a major online retailer. So 
it, instead of 10 pounds, it is on sale for eight tonight. Um, thank you very much for supporting me. Um, and I just want to say a big thanks to Zelda and Brixton Book Jam. This is my third time reading at the Book Jam. So great to see you guys. Uh, thanks for listening to me read. Thank you, Ivy. Uh, and now we're going to crack on with Graham Buchan. He's a writer and a poet. He's published short stories, travel writing, and dozens of art, film, theatre, and book reviews in a range of UK newspapers and websites. He's published five books of poetry, and his short fiction has appeared in the London Magazine, Literal, Butterfly, and other prestigious outlets. And he's been read at Liars League events in London, New York, and Hong Kong. Let's hear it for Graham Buchan. Thank you to Zelda and all concerned. This is my second visit here. About seven or eight years ago, I came and read a short story. This book is called The Pleasure of Firing Back. It contains prose and poetry. Of the prose pieces, I'm going to choose one. It's in four parts. I'm going to read the first two parts. The piece is called The Torturer and His Love for Beethoven. Part one. The torturer retires for the evening and listens to Beethoven. Ant number one still has that pathetic look of defiance in his eye despite us breaking his teeth. I let Benjamin have the club for five minutes. Ant number three is whimpering a lot and is becoming delirious. We use the sanding disc on sections of his back. We might lose him. Ant number four is a tough bastard. I don't want to use physical methods unless we really have to. It would be messy, and he's the sort who might still hold out. I'll give it another two days of no sleep, but the guards really need to sharpen up. Bloody idiot Shaffer forgot the ringing. We broke ant number five with the hood trick. This is where the ant is marched with a hood over his head down two long passageways into the hall. He is maneuvered onto the chair. The hood is quickly removed and at the very moment when he's got used to the light, in front of him he sees his wife wearing the same dress she was arrested in drop from the gallows. We got the timing perfect. He fell apart and gave us 15 names. We shot him in the afternoon with two ordinaries. It's early days on ants six and seven. The water looks promising on both of them. Tomorrow afternoon, I interview six hopefuls applying to fill the place Reynolds left when he got sick. In the section, what attracts you to this position? 
One of them included the pension plan, always a good sign. It always seemed to me that the tempo relationship between the third and fourth movements, I'm talking about the seventh symphony here, was critical. It's essentially two fast movements, but the speeds need to be distinguishable. Ashkenazi pretty much nails it. Norrington, somewhat surprisingly, applies the brakes a bit in the finale. Kleiber is still superb. Good old Beethoven, or should I say, good old Beethoven in his more bombastic frame of mind. Part two. The torturer prepares for his vacation and thinks some more about Beethoven. Who bloody Ray, a week at the coast starting tomorrow. Mags and Tommy are excited too. I just hope they don't put us in the same room as last year. What with the boiler gurgling away and the noise of the lift doors, we hardly got any sleep. The sod on the front desk was so intransigent, I thought he should work for us. Still, when the lift did break down, as happens, it was good that we were on the ground floor. I also hope to God that we're not at the same table as pompous git Hoffman. His interminable war hero stories drove me bloody mad. He's too loud to be in security, should be in transport or something. And his awful screeching wife, no one could be bothered to tell her about the bit of cabbage stuck on her tooth. Let's just hope the beach is still good. It's pretty obvious that the real game changers amongst the Beethoven symphonies are the third, the fifth, and the ninth. I could never get my head around the fourth. Compared to its predecessor, it's so conventional. Why the step back? And the eighth hardly prepares you for the glories of the ninth. We had an ant a couple of years back, some sort of music professor. Reynolds came up with the cute idea of using the third as the main component of his sleep deprivation, drive the bugger mad with his favorite Beethoven symphony. But I overruled him. For one thing, I didn't want to spoil my own enjoyment. Anyway, he cracked quite quickly and we arrested half the faculty. I'm not good at delegating. Spent the whole bloody day instructing and re-instructing the staff. I'm so fearful of cock-ups while I'm away. I know I have to trust them, but Jesus, last year they killed two ants without getting a scrap of extra information. At least the forecast is good. Should you think any of that is far-fetched? It isn't. Thank you. Brixton Book Jam, woo, woo, Brixton Book Jam, woo. That's the uh, new theme music for it. Uh, as yet, we're going to try and get a grant from the government uh, for some musicians, etc. Uh, that was Graham Buchan. And now, finally, we're going to have Celine Hispic.
His speech shape. She began her career as a featured writer at the Royal Court Theatre. She's seen her plays being performed and broadcasted on LBC in both London and New York. Presenting on Capital Radio as a teenager and interviewing bands gave her the springboard into music with both singing and songwriting. She currently runs Celine Salon and has published two anthologies with Wordville Press. A big hand for Celine Hispici, the last of tonight's woo, Brixton Book Jam. Let's give him a massive round of applause. Yay. And to all the other writers, musicians, I've been like just blown away with so much talent in a lovely room. But I literally grew up, I went to primary school in 1973, four, my nursery was around the corner. And I remember me and my brother, it was called the George Cannon, this pub. And my mum and dad were like, Throw us under the pool table, snooker table then, because it wasn't so Americanized. And we just sit there with our Coca-Colas and cheese and onion crisps and like, love it. There you go. So it's lovely to be back in Brixton. So I, I've been living in Soho now for 17 years. Um, I love history. I love how, you know, flagstones, the stones we walk on, who was there before, how we've got here now. So as an influence in my writing, that's very much, you know, I love Hogarth, I love Dickens. I love how we have to go back to go forward sometimes in a learning process, but also embracing the new. And within that, I sort of, I was born in Paris and um, I've always been influenced by um, salons, which would be a room, uh, an intimate room where people would share their works. So people like um, Gertrude Stein, would have Ezra Pound, the poet, to Salvador Dali, and it would just be this amazing night with cocktails and frolics. It sounded, I wish I could go back in a time machine, actually. Um, so I wanted to create a literary salon stroke cabaret where I could platform new and established writers and give them an opportunity to have a platform where they could either try out a new work or, you know, just if they've never, a first timer, you know, give them the confidence to get up there and write something. And we're now going into our seventh year, so I'm over the moon, right? We've helped some really good writers. Um, I'm also really appreciative to Lucy George, who's my publisher sitting here. Um, without you, none of this would have happened. Thank you. Um, anyway, shut up, Celine, enough of the waffling. <laughs> so I was gonna share first piece in the book, there is, um, we've done, this is volume, it's an anthology, we've got volume one, which came out last year, which is a collection of 29 writers over the six years that we have been running these nights. From New York to the Caribbean, everyone got involved. Um, I was very privileged to get funding for um, volume two, which meant I could go to, I wanted to go to Scotland, Ireland and Wales and exchange writers with each of the places. So this is what this book is about. We've been to Glasgow, we've been to Tenby, and we've been to Derry. So we've got a beautiful mixture um, of the four kingdoms coming together. There you go. Right. You're meant to clap, you miserable gits. <laughs> oh no, is it that time of the night? <laughs> right, okay, so um, obviously I'm, which is, I'm, I love being part of the, I'm the mistress of ceremonies, and I love opening up with sort of spoken word, a cappella um, pieces, but... 
The first piece I'm going to um, share with you is called the Skyline Ballet, and it's exactly about what's going on with buildings right now, where they're ripping out listed buildings and just keeping facades as the listed thing. So I'm very passionate about some of the hidden gems, lovely gems we have architecturally in London. So I'm just going to see, uh, share this. It's called the Skyline Ballet. Cranes like elegant monsters perform the Skyline Ballet. New wave metropolis going up. Georgian buildings crumbling down. Goodbye Astoria and the Greek fish and chip shop. Dingy alleyways where naughty things go on. Girls in neon fishnets walk in marshmallow high heels fueled by vodka Red Bulls. Modern day Gin Lane at St. Giles's Circus entices the goths and punks to its wares. Rowdy baldy, electric music fills the air. Tarts and the arts congregate, creating a living, breathing canvas. Projectile splatters, rain pitter patters like a Dickens illustrated plates. New wave, old wave, acid house, culture wave, hip hop, bebop, the carousel of contemporary takes you on a swirly, whirly ride. The modern day Hogarth puffs on his roly and soaks up images in his twinkling eyes. A cloud of ostrich feathers encases the beautiful Bahiba. Hobnob vintage boots, pinstripe dapper, with pencil, moustache, he's having a giraffe. Alienesque, burlesque, what's next? High kick, military robots on checkered tiles. Where's David Lynch when you need him? Diary of a word eater, falls in love with a panel beater. Licking the curbs of Charing Cross Road. Belgian waffler, eighties back comb, hip hop, bebop, hot scotch, top notch. Fly the fashionistas pouring out of clubs. Sequin capes, mango vapes, disperse into the night. Uber is the booba. No bolts to whisk away. Burping workers, suburban night crawlers. <laughs> Modern Lego, architectural blow. Cherry lights, skim the air. Bring on the cranes. Take off the clowns. A rapture of bows to the skyline ballet. Tip top, loud pop. Bravo. The Skyline Ballet. Thank you. Thank you so much. So it's like my passion of what, you know, you, you literally look on the skyline and they're all like that with like little red cherries with the lights going along. I know, but yeah, I just, I'm very kind of, it's so fucking dull, man. Get the fuck out. <laughs> so, um, it's One of the trips we made uh, was to Tembi, and the reason I chose Tembi is because I love um, the artists Augustus and Gwen John and Nina Hamnet. And Tembi is a really beautiful, I don't know if anyone's been there, it's really, it's a stunning little cozy seaside town. And it kind of influenced me to take the show to the Tembi Museum 
which holds some of the most beautiful original pieces of Augustus John and Gwen John, and to get local writers to get involved, whether it was music, songwriting, poetry, um, playwrights, we got everyone involved and it was a magical experience. But what I would do to sort of clear my head, because um, when you're hosting these things, you've got a lot of shit to deal with, and people are staying in a house, you sort of have to go on wonders on your own. And I just wondered, like, what had been washed up on that beach? It's like, it's quite a magical little place that it holds so much history. And um, this is called Curiosities, and it's in memory, sorry, memory, in memory of the lost Tembi lifeboat men. Let the sea pull in stories of the night. Let the waves unroll their magic to recite. Let the rocks encase deep secret passages. Burning gaslights fall on darkened carriages. Let the air around form a wordsmith mist. Laying on your tongue a taste you can't resist. A salty, frothy richness flows like gushing water. A storytelling folly, ink ground in pestle and mortar. There's a storm a-brewing and the boat's just made it in. The pipes howl in the wind and the nets are wearing thin. They'll end up in the sluice broken oars and torn rafters, and the ones that turned over later rest forever after. And the courage of the men whose jackets made of cork lower their lanterns and turn to the lightning fork. And the wives, they do a cry to the whistling of the wind. And the angels' lullaby sings out to their kin, sings out, sings out, sings out to their king. Let the wind blow in, let the wind blow in, let the wind blow in. For the sea has many secrets resting on its bed. Gone are many people whose sweat and courage bled. The rocks hold many scars, hard cracking indentation from boats that came afar in search of a new nation. Rope knots are a-creaking, see slapping on their backs, for a wealth they are a-seeking to mark their beaten tracks. And hidden on the seabed, a pot of bravery gold, and gone is their weeping, for they are fearless and bold. Fearless and bold. Like serpents, they dive deep, and fill their pockets full. This is theirs to keep. Their courage conquers all. Yes, you have the courage, O oh brave men of the night. Yes, this is a salute to you. My thoughts are held so tight. Yes, I light a candle bright, for my gratitude is spoken for the lost lifeboat man of the Tembi shores. Go away with the mist, my darling. See in there, I'm waiting there. I'm waiting there.
Thank you. Thank you so much. Selda, I want to say a really big thank you. <clears throat> Cheers. Have a lovely evening. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out tonight and for witnessing and listening to Mick Artist. What's me? Sorry. Uh, deserter. Come on. These men have got, they've, they've sweat blood and fear and everything. Uh, Rosie Wilby. Zelda Riando. CJ Schuller. Music by Rebecca Holweg. And then Ned Bowman on the second set. Quaker Osei Afrifa. Ivan Niao. Graham Buchan. Celine Hispici. Breaks down, book jam. Woo, woo, woo. We'll see you next year. Listen, before we go, I'm just going to give you a couple of uh, bits from Leeds. Do you want a little bit from Leeds? Got a hippo in my pocket. It's a plastic toy. All my friends have grown up. This one's for me. I found it in the street. It was covered in muck. If you give it a squeeze, its eyes swell up. I'm going to take it on home. I'm going to give it a wash. I'm going to stick it on the shelf next to my three-legged horse. I never had a lot of toys when I was a boy. I don't care what my wife says. This one's for me. I've got a hip in my pocket. It's a plastic toy. All my friends have grown up. This one's for me. I found it in the street. It was covered in muck. If you give it a squeeze, its eyes swell up. I'm going to take it on home. I'm going to give it a wash. I'm going to stick it on there. <laughs> like a friend. I never had a lot of toys when I was a boy. I don't care what my wife says. This one's for me. I've got a hip and fuck it. It's a plastic toy. Oh, it's a grown up. This one's for me. I'm out in the street. It's covered in muck. If you give it a squeeze. I swallow, yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. I'm going to do some... Yeah, hang on, hang on, let's see the other one here. Another one for you, here we go. These people have families. These people have mouths to feed. These people are just the same as you and me. They may be all the rage... They may be always on the front page. They may be always on stage, but they're just like you and me. These people have feelings. These people have massive gates. These people have electrified gates. These people are lonely. They may have a flat in Berlin. When you knock, there's nobody in. But these people are just the same as you and me. These people have deer on their wall. These people, they go to the ball. I lost the, I lost the last line. 
The Kanye West tickets haven't arrived. They may have a flat in Spain, but these people, they suffer pain. These people are just the same as you and me. Brixton Book Jam, woo, woo. I'm going to do some fucking accordion, hang on. I'm going to play some accordion when I find it. Big hand for Stuart Taylor. Right, here we go. This is a song with music, it's different, and it goes like this. This is for Ivan at the bar. Imagine a sort of a, an American diner. There's dust, there's heat, there's a sound of chikoritas, whatever they call them, crickets, outside. That's all the song is. Well, I'll ring you on the landline. Let's go back to 99. When my hair was so brown and fine. And we were living in clover. Yes, I'll ring you on the landline. I really need some quality time Leave the mobile phone behind We'll talk like we used to do, yeah Now we can sit in the hall for an hour or more And shoot the breeze Pretend that we're alone And no one's listening in I'm gonna close the door and join you with a phone and a glass in my hand and we'll go back and talk like we used to do, yeah Well, I'll ring you on the landline Let's go back to the days of change Outside the phone box in the rain Inside the phone box in a pool of piss I'll ring you on the landline We got a lot to talk about Don't be a stranger, give me a shout We'll talk like we used to do Now it's a funny thing, I got so many friends But there's no one here tonight I'm stuck in a hole, I'm a forgotten soul I'm just trying to reach the light Now life is fine and life is dandy I got a hundred pair of shoes But I just can't seem to shake these lonely blues Yeah, one more time I'll ring you on the landline I really need some quality time 
Don't feel connected to this world of mine, but I still remember your number. I rang you on the landline, yellow pages on my knee. A glass of wine and some crackers and cheese. We'll talk like we used to do, yeah. Yes, we'll talk. Talk like we used to do. Oh, we'll talk. Talk like we used to do. Can I go bless? Get to bed. Thank you. Big thank you to Mick Artistic and everyone tonight. Thank you to you, the ever-attentive and wonderful and beautiful audience. Thank you. Can we give you a big round of applause? Uh, Boot Jam will be back. I want to thank the bar staff, who are just exceptional and wonderful. They give a green room for the writers. Set all the chairs out for you folks. Make sure there's tables. Thank you. I want to thank the Hootenanny, who went, you must charge. And we went, no. Book Jam is free at point of use, just like the NHS. And they did relent and continue to make sure Book Jam is free for everybody. So you guys, you have to help us. Uh, I want volunteers, anyone who wants to help curate, those good writers, those people that need to be bubbled up, bring them on, come and talk to us, bookjam.com. Uh, thank you to Mick, who's been a wonderful host this evening as well. Amazing. We are most privileged to have the wonderful Mick Artistic to entertain us. Uh, the next book jam, I find in December it can be a bit quiet. I need your opinions. Should we do a book fair of all the writers we have at book jam and readings in between? Would people come to that? Okay, first Monday in December, we got a date then. Thank you so much, everyone, and see you next time.